0: Well, if you if you missed the introduction, uh, my name is Ben. I'm the music and ministry coordinator here at Christ Church, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, our pastor Mike, his wife, and uh, their family—they're away in Texas this week on vacation, um, so you can remember them in your prayers. But they will be back with us next week. Uh, this morning we return to the Gospel according to Luke. Um, we began actually working through. Uh, the book of Luke, as a church all the way back in fall 2021 when we launched uh, services for the first time. Um, We returned to Luke, if you'll remember, last spring for a bit, and now we'll pick things up again where we left off in Luke 7. The gospel according to Luke, it's a carefully researched first century document of the life and ministry of Christ. Luke tells us his writing is based on multiple sources, um, eyewitnesses, and written documents. It was finished and spread among churches in in the Roman world as early as 63 AD. Uh, It's believed that that Christ died in 33 AD, Uh, so the details Luke gives, the the names, the places, could have very easily been verified because so many of the eyewitnesses were still living uh, in the places that that, um, it's recorded in Luke. Uh, Luke tells us, though, why he wrote. Luke wrote so that his readers, both ancient And modern may have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught about Jesus in other words Luke writes to build and strengthen our faith in Christ he writes so that we would believe the gospel the good news of Jesus the good news that Luke writes about and wants us to believe is that to undo sin and all the horrible scarring consequences of sin in our world God entered into our world through his only son Jesus and through life Uh, and through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, sin and death are defeated, and we can be reconciled back to God. Today, uh, we pick up the story, as I mentioned, in chapter 7, the middle of a larger section in Luke, uh, between chapters 3 and 9, where Luke is painting for us kind of this portrait of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And we'll specifically be looking at verses 18 to 35 this morning. You can find them on the back middle portion of the bulletin. I'll invite Zach forward. He's going to read this passage for us, Um, but as he comes forward, let me pray for us as we open God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that by your spirit you reveal yourself to us so that we can know you as we read your word today. Would you open our ears, soften our hearts, so that we might hear, understand, and obey what you have said.
1: In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke 7, to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Well, one of the amazing things about the Bible is that you can go from Habakkuk, uh, an Old Testament prophet that that we've been looking at over the last three weeks, uh, to Luke, a book written in a completely different time period, uh, in a completely different style, by a different author, and still find a similar message. Through Habakkuk, we spoke a lot about doubt and questioning God amidst terrible circumstances. In our passage today, we find John the Baptist is wrestling with the same issues. Finding himself in prison, he's struggling to believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah that, that he had waited for. That he is the Messiah that, that he has prepared the way for. And so we see John uh, discouraged in verse 19. He, he asks, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another as a church, uh, our typical pattern is actually that we preach through whole books of the Bible or uh, large sections of scripture. And one of the realities of this is that you do get some repetition. Um, you simply preach the next text regardless of what it says, regardless of its, of its theme or its message. So in our passage today, we do find some similarities to Habakkuk. And this ultimately isn't, isn't a bug, it, it's actually a feature Preaching this way helps us keep, as a church, the main things, the main things. If the Bible speaks a lot about doubt, we'll end up speaking a lot about doubt. If the the Bible continually shows us that that Christians will face trouble and difficulty uh, in all sorts of different ways, we'll end up talking about that. We simply preach what we have been given. And so today, as we look at this passage, you'll hopefully see some similar themes shine through, but hopefully also we'll discover some new uh, things about what Luke is telling us about who Jesus is. Um, Our our goal this morning is quite simple. What do we learn in this passage about who Jesus is and what he has done? That's our main goal. What do we learn in this passage in Luke about who Jesus is and what he has done? And to answer this question, we're going to look at this text in, in three parts. John's doubt, Jesus's questions, And then our confidence. So let's jump in. We're going to begin with John's doubt. Um, In our passage today, John the Baptist, he finds himself in prison. Um, John was imprisoned by King Herod after speaking out and condemning the king's marriage to Herodias. uh, Because Herodias was already married to the king's brother, Philip. Um, Herodias wanted to put John to death for speaking out uh, against their marriage. He, He had told them it was wrong. But King Herod, he was a little bit more cautious. Um, He sensed something unique about John, this kind of quirky desert guy. And so he plays it more cautious and just puts him in jail for now. At this point, uh, John had been in prison for several months. And you can imagine John would have been a little bit perplexed by his newfound uh, situation. John's confusion ultimately would have stemmed from his expectation on who Jesus was and what he had come to do. John, like many others, expected Jesus to, to reestablish Israel as uh, an independent nation, um, ousting the Romans from power. Um, the Messiah would, would be the one to build and restore the temple and would fight decisive battles against their enemies. In other words, they kind of had this idea that the Messiah would kind of just be like an Old Testament king, but, but like bigger, better, stronger, braver, um, and more dominant. With this vision in John's head, you could imagine he was a little bit um, confused and maybe why the doubt begins to creep in for him. John had been obedient to God's call, Um, preaching, calling people to repent and to believe in the coming Messiah, right? He even takes this message all the way to the king and his wife, right? He was following the steps, doing what he was supposed to do, patiently waiting for victory and for Herod and the Romans to be overthrown. But things seem to be heading backwards. Uh, The script is flipped. John is the one in prison. Um, He's slowly losing hope that, uh, yeah, because of his current circumstance. If Jesus is the one who is to come, shouldn't I be free? Shouldn't Herod be the one in prison? If the Messiah is to put an end to to injustice, why does it seem to be flourishing? And the fact that it's John the Baptist that is full of doubt is significant. Uh, this is John the Baptist, after all. This is John, the one who, who recognized already while he was still in the womb of his mother who Jesus was, and he leapt for joy. This is John, the one who baptized Jesus. Or this is John, the one who saw the Spirit of God descend on Christ like a dove. Or this is John, the one who heard and witnessed God say to Jesus, This is my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is John the Baptist doubting whether Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited king. If he can doubt, if John can doubt, I I think any one of us can doubt. What we saw in Habakkuk and what we saw in our passage today and what we see with lots of other people throughout scripture is that when trouble comes, when difficulty arises, when our expectations are not met, doubt often creeps in. We ask, how can this be? Why are you doing this to me? Isn't there a better way? this is not who I thought you were. We don't only doubt our, our own choices, the life choices of those we love, but we doubt God and his character. We doubt if he knows best. We, we doubt if he is actually in control. For most of us, it's not a question of if doubt will come, but, but when it will come. If John can doubt, any of us can doubt. But what, what we do see is that John handles his doubt admirably. I He doesn't stew in bitterness. He doesn't give up on the cause. He doesn't turn his back on Christ. Instead, he goes to the source. He goes to Christ with his questions. Imprisonment, it doesn't fit into this picture of who Jesus should be according to John. And so, alone in his doubt, needing an answer, he calls for two of his disciples. And he tells them, find Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John's disciples, they're, they're, they're avail- eventually able to track Jesus down. Of course, this was before, you know, cell phones and the internet, so they actually had to go into different, different communities and try to find him. But when they do eventually find him, they ask him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus, uh, we notice he, he's, he seems unsurprised by John's doubt. And he, he answers it, but he doesn't start with words. He starts with action. Verse 21 tells us that in that hour Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. That's quite a statement in and of itself. um, In one sense the proof is in the pudding. Jesus is showing John and us who he really is. He has power over sickness and disease and evil spirits. He can open the eyes of the blind. He does have authority. He is in control but after Jesus heals we do eventually hear him speak first to John's disciples the one who asked the question on behalf of John right Jesus tells them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard right the blind will receive their sight the lame walk lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised up the poor have good news preached to them if we knew the old testament as well as John Bells probably would have started going off at this point because John would have recognized Jesus' words. We find very similar prophecies uh, in Isaiah 35 and 61. Right? Jesus is making it clear here that these prophecies were about him. Right? Jesus was saying to John, like, go look at your Bible, read Isaiah 35 and 61, and you'll get an answer to your question whether I'm the one that you're waiting for or whether you should look for someone else. Jesus, through his actions and then through his words, makes it clear that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who the prophets foretold, the one who would crush the enemy and usher in the kingdom of God. There is no need to look for another. The king has come. This leads to our second point, Jesus's questions. As John's disciples leave, uh, ready to to give John this message, Jesus then turns to the crowd. And as he speaks, again, we see Jesus isn't doesn't seem too phased by John's doubt he's not taken back um, offended or surprised instead he shares with the crowd exactly what he thinks of John the Baptist confirming John's prophetic status and his importance and prominence in redemptive history Jesus he turns to the crowd and he asks them what did you go out into the wilderness to see a a reed shaken by the wind the implication is is of, of course not what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? You went to see a prophet. And yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. See, what's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying you didn't go see John because he was rich and wealthy. You didn't just go to see some sort of um, um, natural event. You didn't go to see him because he lived a life of luxury. You go out to the wilderness to see a prophet. And John wasn't just any old prophet, but the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. Right? They went to the wilderness because after hundreds of years of silence, a prophet from God had finally appeared again. Right? The one who would prepare the way for the Lord. They knew John was legitimate, and Jesus confirms this for us. But Jesus continues, how important was John actually? Well, in verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, None is greater than John. This is a a bit of a startling statement. If you or I had been asked to name, you know, the greatest person ever born up to that point, we might have guessed Moses, maybe David, you know, really influential and important people in the Old Testament. And yet, according to Jesus, someone greater than Moses had come, someone who was more than a prophet. After all, Moses or David, they didn't get to baptize Christ John did. John had a a special and unique role in the story of Christ and redemptive history. But here, Jesus' main point isn't so much uh, like an Old Testament assessment and ranking of these sort of different important people. It's actually what he says next. Because things get even a little more crazy. Because Jesus adds this, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Greater than John the Baptist. So as great as John is, right? The greatest man ever born of woman up until this point. The least in the kingdom of God is still greater than John. What, what on earth does this mean? Well, uh, one preacher joked, and he said, uh, let's assume that, that the person preaching to you this morning, in this case that's me, is least in the kingdom of God, right? As discouraging as that might be for me, I can take comfort in knowing that I'm still greater than John the Baptist, Which means that you guys have someone preaching to you this morning greater than John the Baptist. Now, like, it can hardly get a whole lot better than that, right? But, of course, this seems, like, silly. That's a bad trade for you guys. Because we know that John the Baptist, being one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, is far greater than you or I are in terms of his importance to the whole scope of the Christian story and redemptive history. Right? I'm sure my reward in heaven won't look anything like the reward that John will get for his martyrdom, fidelity, convictions, and his public confession of Christ. So what then does it mean that, that, that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist? Because that is what Jesus says. Well, we must remember that, that despite John's great privileges and his incredible faith, John was still, in a very real sense, an Old Testament prophet. True, he stood on the cusp of the kingdom, announcing its arrival, uh, preparing the way even for Christ, Right, seeing it more closely than any prophet before him. But on this occasion, at least, John still found himself searching. Ultimately, outranking John for, for you or I is not a matter of prideful boasting, but rather of humble rejoicing. Many prophets and kings long to see what we have seen and didn't see them many prophets and kings they, they longed to receive what we have received and didn't receive it right if we have received a greater blessing than john it's only by sheer grace right we did not choose to be born in this time and in this age when christ has been so clearly revealed right john prophesied of the one who would baptize god's people with the holy spirit And while john was certainly filled with the spirit in a real way he didn't live to experience the pentecost outpouring that he had predicted right but even now that the least new covenant member in the kingdom of god is indwelt with the promised holy spirit and lives under the kingship of christ right even the least in the kingdom of god doesn't have to wonder whether jesus is is one of god's people we're waiting for or whether we should look for another Right, even the least of us has learned to confess with our mouths basic and beloved realities which for john were still future and fuzzy right that jesus became obedient to death that god has highly exalted him and that through christ there is forgiveness of sin resurrection or sorry reconciliation to god and hope of new life in the resurrection we can see these things clearly right our greatness refers not to our status before god but our blessedness in witnessing things of Jesus that John and others in the Old Testament longed to see. And so this leads then to our third point, our confidence. Right? John's doubt here was real and legitimate. Right? And even though we're privileged with seeing more of Christ, right, many of us still struggle with doubt, like John. Right? Life presents serious troubles, and challenges, and so we can quickly doubt if God knows what he's doing, if he is the one In control. We can think maybe there's another way, maybe a different God, a better God, or maybe there is no God at all. Maybe it is all up to me. But the message that we learn in Habakkuk and the message that we learn in Luke 7 is that not that doubt is necessarily wrong, but that when doubt comes, when trials and difficulties arise, don't run from God. Rather turn to Him with your questions and your doubts. Turn to Him, the one who can heal and restore. And trust that he is who he says he is. Right? Trust that Christ is the one that the prophets of the Old Testament foretold and that he is the savior that we desperately need. And maybe that's the clearest thing we learn about Christ in Luke 7. Right? That Jesus is who he says he is. We can't mold him to our own expectation or our own likings. Right? We can't pick and choose which uh, teachings to embrace or ignore. In one sense, this isn't really a team effort. This is Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the reigning king of heaven and earth. He is who he says he is. Unfortunately, we don't really get a say in the matter. Jesus warns the crowds about this, knowing that many of their expectations were out of step about who Jesus really was. In verse 31, Jesus, speaking to the crowd, he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? Right? They're like children, sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's essentially comparing uh, many in the crowd, the people of that generation, to children who can't really agree on a game. Um, if you remember back to when you were a child and you wanted to play a game with your Uh, siblings or or with your friends so often the game was ruined because there was no consensus in the group Um, one wants to play dress up the other you know cops and robbers one with dolls one with cars and so the fighting and disagreements get out of hand and often the entire game is ruined because we want what we want right we want to call the shots ultimately in verses 33 and 34 we see where this pride leads and it leads to rejection right for john the baptist has come this is what they say or this is what jesus says sorry eating at no bread and drinking no wine right and they say he's got a demon but then the son of man comes right eating and drinking and you say to him look a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners right these people were not interested in following a king they were interested in a god of their own making these people didn't want Jesus, they just wanted another earthly king who would give them what they wanted. If we don't take our doubt and our questions and troubles to God, we do run the same risk. Right? When our expectations for, for who Jesus is blind us to who he actually is, right? when we're not interested in Jesus as he presents himself in his word, we're no different than, than children fighting amongst themselves, missing the amazing reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. Right? That, that's not to say that our, our, our difficulties are not truly difficult. A life is extremely, can be extremely painful. A doubt can creep in quickly. Um, if we continue on in Luke, we'll see that, that John the Baptist, he never actually gets out of jail, not to you know, give a spoiler, uh, but instead he gets beheaded, killed for speaking out. Even Jesus, the Messiah, lived not a life of luxury or pleasure or ease. Instead, he's rejected by many, including his disciples and those closest to him. At one point, even his family asks, like, is this guy out of his mind? Jesus, betrayed by one of his closest disciples, denied by another, ultimately executed on a cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him struggling to deal with the anguish that was to come. And he sweat drops of blood as he awaited his betrayal and ultimately his death. Jesus, he was known as a man of sorrows, despised, rejected, and acquainted with grief. He knew what John felt. He knows what you and I feel. And yet, as people living in the 21st century were blessed to know how the story ends, that the grave could not hold him, that Jesus defeats death rising from the grave, making a way for you and I to be reconciled to God, right? adopted as his children and given the gift of eternal life. Right? Different than John, we know the cross. On the cross, Christ took our sin upon himself. He suffered on our behalf and by his wounds we are healed. Right? In Christ, we see horrible circumstances used for our good. We see injustice, betrayal, and death ultimately for our life. And for our forgiveness. Our confidence is not something future and fuzzy, but in Christ on the cross revealed to us through his word. So, what do we learn in Luke 7 about who Jesus is and what he's come to do? Well, we learn that Jesus is the Messiah who was foretold. He is the one, as Isaiah 61 tells us, to bring good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We learn in Luke 7 that Jesus' coming ushers in a new period of blessing, the kingdom of God, where we can know who Jesus is and what he has come to do through his word and his spirit who dwells within us. We learn in Luke 7 that trouble and grief will come but that Jesus doesn't leave us alone in those times. Rather, he answers with action and his word. He may act and speak differently than we expect, but because of the cross, we know that whatever trial we endure, it will be used for our good and his glory. Maybe most importantly, in Luke 7, we learn that Christ is who he says he is. We can't pick and choose. He's not a God of our own making. He is who he is, and in his kindness... Through his spirit and through his word, he reveals himself to us so that we may know him and love him and receive forgiveness through him. So as you go out from here and navigate the ups and downs of everyday life, may you bring your doubts and questions to Christ. May you be encouraged by who he is and what he has come to do. Right? His mission, not as, a, as an earthly ruler with a powerful sword, but as a man of sorrows near to the broken hearted eager to extend his care and his comfort, ultimately laying down his life for you and for me so that we can be brought into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. By your spirit, open our eyes so that we might know you and love you
1: more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.